As we spend more and more time at home, it is more important than ever to remain connected and in conversation. The North Acre at Home series was born with a vision of celebrating our passion for all things home. We seek to bring to you conversations with individuals, all experts in their respective fields, across all aspects of home, from investment to design and everything in between. We hope this series sparks your interest and we would be delighted to hear your thoughts and ideas as we look to carve a future together, both inside and out of the home. My guest today on Northacre at Home is Andy Sturgeon. Since 1988, Andy Sturgeon, internationally renowned landscape and garden designer, has been dedicated to creating dynamic external garden design projects for private, commercial and international clients. Based in Sussex, Andy and his team work on projects across London, the UK and overseas. Andy has won eight gold medals at Chelsea Flower Show and been awarded the coveted Best in Show three times. He is a published author, journalist and broadcaster and a commentator in the international garden design sector. He has published several books, including Planted, Potted and most recently, Big Plans, Small Gardens. Hi, Andy. Thanks for joining us. Could we start by you telling us a little bit about your background and how you got into garden design? Yeah, sure. So I, I guess it's true to say I kind of fell into it, really. But uh, what drove me there was um, a love of nature and the outdoors. So when I left school, I didn't really have much of a plan. But I, I started working as a landscape contractor. So I was laying bricks and paving and that sort of thing. And, uh, and then I sort of discovered plants. And I realized that it was a fantastic way to combine all the things that I love with being outdoors, actually creating something and making something. So I, uh, I took myself off to college, but garden design didn't really exist as a profession. This was in the mid 80s. And so I went and studied tropical plants and interior landscaping because it had a design element, which in a way seems a bit ridiculous when I look back at it now, but it's actually become very useful. So I've ended up um, knowing how to make gardens. I know about plants that come from different parts of the world, which means that we can work overseas in different climates and then eventually I, I after after college I got a job working for a garden designer called David Stevens who was probably the only garden designer out there employing anyone so I was quite lucky and I did that for a while and sort of learnt learnt how to do it and then went off on my own. And you've worked on some of the most exciting super prime projects you know, across the world, including in London. Um, what are the biggest challenges in designing urban landscapes and gardens, would you say? Well, urban landscapes have very, very challenging environments and constraints. So no matter where they are in the world, they're very sort of false environments in a way. So they're, they're, you can compare them to kind of rocky canyons and that sort of thing and planting perched on top of cliff edges because that's basically what you're trying to do. You often don't have a great deal of soil or space to work with and you have all the elements beating down on things. So you've got extremes of sun and rain and wind, uh, which is, is, can be quite harsh for, for many plants. You might be planting on a roof or a podium where there's no real depth of soil so the whole thing is always a little bit like a, a very complex puzzle to get everything to work. It sounds very challenging. 
So, but if we move on to looking at North Acres um, developments, number one, Palace Street has views over the gardens of Buckingham Palace and its moments from London's Royal Parks. As a keen gardener and patron of uh, the Chelsea Flower Show um, since, you know, 1952, the Queen's love of gardens has clearly sort of passed down the generations. You know, what do you think makes London's gardens so timeless and special? Well, I think probably like London's architecture, you know, we have a lot of history there and it's the same with our gardens, really. So they are very much rooted in, in the past, in history. And sometimes I see that as baggage and it stops us from sort of moving on and doing more contemporary things. But if you look at what we work with, you know, we might work with materials like Portland stone and York stone, which are present throughout London. And, and the same thing goes for plants. So we might use things like yew hedging that's clipped, you know, which has been done for basically 500 years. We've been doing that with our gardens here since the Italian Renaissance um, <clears throat> gardens that we sort of copied and brought to this country. So. It is very old ideas that we employ, but we're, everyone's always interpreting them in different ways and moving them on slightly. But because they're rooted in history, it gives it a real gravitas and importance and somehow knits it into the fabric of our city. And so in saying that, what would you say is the ultimate luxury garden for you know, a high net worth client? I suppose in, in cities anywhere, anywhere what's, what's happening is that gardens are very much about lifestyle. So spaces obviously is a premium. So they become more about entertaining spaces uh, and an extension of the house in that way. It's, it's quite interesting working with high net worth individuals because they frequently own more than one property. And what that means is it doesn't put too much pressure on any one of those, those, those homes. So you might have the country garden where you have lots of space and rolling lawns and woodlands and things like that. And you don't need to try and squeeze all of these things into the London, London home. So if, you know, if it's a large roof garden, for example, you can focus on lounge areas, cooking areas, dining areas, that sort of thing, um, and, and create very different spaces and just bring perhaps a different style of planting in as well. You know, London has a microclimate, so it's a few degrees warmer than the surrounding countryside. And that means you might be able to create a garden that looks very different because of the types of plants that you're using. And how do you ensure your designs um, meet clients' desires, but also keeping them current and sort of long lasting and probably put your little bit of uh, creative flair on it as well? Well, when I go and see a client, they, uh, they often have fairly loose ideas about what they want. It, it's, it's interesting because if you're talking about the interiors, they often have very fixed ideas, but when it comes to the garden, it's much looser. And that's, I, I like that way of working because they can throw lots of random, disparate ideas at me. And I feel that my job is to really edit those down. So I'll never, I'll never put something into a garden if I feel it doesn't work. So I'll just take the ideas, distill it down. And there's, there's often a slight difference, really, between what clients want and what they actually need. And so... I spend a lot of time trying to understand their lifestyle, how they'll actually live in that property, which is difficult if it's a new, a new home, they've never lived there. But you have to try and tease all these things out so that you really can give them what they need so that the garden fits with the way that they're going to use it. 
And what are your suggestions when curating a communal garden within a high-end residential development, uh, a pied-à-terre or on a vast roof terrace such as the Broadway? How would you design these types of spaces if they were yours? Well, we do do an increasing number of communal gardens. So many developments have them now and it's become so important to give as many people as possible access to green space. So probably the number one thing with a communal garden is to design it so that it's very flexible. So you have to meet the needs of all age groups for one thing. So it has to be a playable landscape, not necessarily a playground, but something that kids can can play on and in and not cause any damage to it. But it has to be flexible in terms of numbers too. So you might have somewhere that one person can sit in private and read a book, or you might also have a larger area where people can have a bit of a party or just gather in, in groups. So that's the main thing. And of course, part of that means you've got to have lots of places to sit and that doesn't necessarily mean loose furniture. It might mean steps and low walls and things that you build as part of the landscape so that it can accommodate more people when it needs to, but not look empty if there's no one in it. And then you need to provide a variety of sort of sun and shade so that people have lots of choice about what they're going to do in the garden and, and where they're going to do it. It sounds um, sounds lovely. What about materials? Um, is there any you love working with or that you would suggest using? Well, I've uh, in my career, I've embraced a lot of new materials as they've come along. And it's not always a good idea, partly because you don't necessarily know how they're going to weather. And it's important that a material looks good for a very long period of time. Um, but also because they might date. You know, I can think back to the 90s and the noughties when everyone was putting shiny stainless steel water features in. And when I look back at those gardens, which seemed very cutting edge at the time, they look incredibly dated now. And so my approach really now is to focus on using natural materials. So timber, stone, and I'll include metal in that list. We, we use, work with a lot of metals, whether you think about copper and lead and zinc, the way that they weather um, and patinate, it does give them a sort of natural tone. So that's kind of my main palette, uh, although I will bring other things in. And then the new kid on the block is basically porcelain or ceramic paving tiles which now looks so much like stone that most people can't tell the difference and the brilliant thing about it is that they just don't age so you can clean them easily and they look uh, you know they look great for years so yeah that that's becoming an increasing part of our palette and and what about art and and sculpture in the gardens well, I've always seen myself as, as a frustrated architect and a frustrated sculptor, really. So I've used my profession as a landscape designer to try and marry all the things together which I love uh, and enjoy doing. So I'll often approach a design in quite a sculptural way, in the way that I'm defining spaces within a garden. Um, so I might be putting in walls and things like that and structures and actually often designing in huge sculptural components, which I've done you know, quite frequently, particularly at Chelsea Flower Show. The one thing which, which I, I, I don't like is when a sculpture gets bought and plonked into a garden. So without too much thought, I, I genuinely believe it has to be properly curated. You have to think about 
where it's going to be seen from, how people are going to discover it and interact with it, how the light falls on it, the sunlight, or whether it's artificially lit, all of these things uh, have to be really well thought through. And so I find myself perhaps designing a garden to accommodate a certain piece that a client might own, uh, or we might design a garden knowing that they're going to go on a quest to look for something specific. So we might create the, the place for it. Um, without actually knowing what it is. And that way, the whole thing becomes integrated. And the other thing about art, of course, is that it can cost a reasonable sum of money. And and if clients do move on, they can take that piece of art with them um, rather than you know investing money in a, in a property and leaving it there. Yeah, I, I, I imagine that people would definitely not want to leave those uh, beautiful art pieces in the garden if they move on. <laughs> yeah, well, we do have a client with a Bathworth, can't him leaving that there. <laughs> <laughs> and tell me, you've um, set the bar very high, actually, speaking of Chelsea Flower Show, um, had such incredible success there. Congratulations. Um, tell me, how do you design a, a show garden sort of differently to a permanent garden? Well, doing a show garden, you're trying to, to, to do a number of different things, I suppose. One, you're trying to show the public something new and interesting. It's like the catwalk of of garden design really so the, some of the ideas that you show there aren't necessarily going to find their way down into um actual gardens because you're doing something perhaps quite dramatic and theatrical but there are a lot of elements there which are of use so it might be the way that you've combined plants uh you know the materials that you've used and those sorts of things so there's got to be a lot for the public to take away uh, I also like to design show gardens as if they were real gardens in a way. So I'll put, even though it's only open for a few days, you know, Chelsea's on for a week, but I'll, I like to put evergreen structure in and really build up the planting palette as if it was an actual garden. And I think what that does is it, 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 it sort of creates the, the magic, the illusion that this is a real garden and not something that's just been made in the last uh, three weeks. Uh, so that helps. But I'm always trying to push... The envelope really because I I've done Chelsea I think nine times now and in some ways when you know how it works you could roll up tick the boxes and walk away with a gold medal with quite an ordinary design perhaps um, but that doesn't hold any excitement for me so I always like to push it and try and take risks and do things which people haven't seen there before uh, and what that means is, is it makes it quite a nerve-wracking experience because you always end up doing something which you don't really know if people are going to like it or not so you have your fingers crossed and you hope they are but if you, you have to take risks and you have to be prepared uh, to accept that there are going to be people who don't like it. Well, it sounds like you've actually got the key to success there. So the risk taking is definitely paying off. <laughs> um, if we just move on to talking about this pandemic, um, there's no doubt it's changed um, people's views towards green spaces and they're valuing their gardens uh, so much more. Um, how do you think the pandemic will change developers and sort of planners' attitudes when they're planning or creating green spaces, I guess, probably like the Broadway or at um, Number One Palace Street? Well, I think even before the pandemic, there we have entered a, a, a phase where people have really understood now the value of green space. And that, that can be just being able to see a tree out of a window as well as having access to a space of whether it's a private garden, a communal garden, or even a park. 
so people understand the value both in monetary terms and in terms of, of health and well-being. And, and of course, now people understand that if people are healthy, um, then they put less, less pressure on the infrastructure of a city in so many ways. And this is part of a trend. So developers um, and, and planners have already been moving in this direction. For the planners, they haven't necessarily had the tools and the, 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 the um, understanding of how to force people to actually embrace this. So there's been a bit of tension because, of course, the developers want to sell um, properties, make money, but they also want, want to do something great. So what's happening now with this pandemic, I feel that it's just a continuation of that trend and it will actually be good for the industry because everyone is now very awake to the value of green space. So, so my hope is that it will mean that in years to come, it just sits even higher up the list of people's desires, whether they're a developer, a planner, or a purchaser of a property. Mm, well, I think um, it's great to see so many more people, you know, really valuing their gardens. Um, and if, if you were to give someone um, some tips on, you know, perhaps if they're beginning their garden journey, where, where, where would you start? <laughs> uh, well, I think probably the most important thing with gardening is that you've got to make a lot of mistakes in order to learn. And so you won't meet a single professional gardener that won't admit to making a lot of mistakes. You know, that includes myself. And so my advice to anyone starting out is just do what you think's right. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But, you know, it's, it's no, no great harm. So you just have to try stuff. Um, but, but on that note, you know, you need to start planting as soon as possible because trees take a while to grow. If you're planting bulbs, double, double the numbers. No one ever plants enough bulbs. So you just need to start as soon as you can, get stuff in the ground and get it growing. I guess learn from your mistakes. I must say, um, you know, if you've got two bulbs, you may have chance of having one grow. <laughs> double yeah. your chances. Yeah, exactly. And you, the other thing is you mustn't get disappointed if things don't work because that's normal. <laughs> yeah, and it sounds like planning ahead uh, is a good idea in regard to if you're doing a whole garden so that um, you're not sort of just fumbling your way through. Hmm. And so tell me, what about your home? Has the pandemic affected your home? I imagine you've got lots of creative ideas in your garden. Yeah, I was quite lucky in a way because I just uh, had my garden. My garden's tiny. I live in the middle of, of Brighton. It's very small. Uh, but I had just had it landscaped uh, towards the end of last year. So when the pandemic hit, I'd already planted some of it. So I was able to sort of carry on doing that. You could buy plants mail order so I could get what I needed. And... I've been micromanaging it ever since. I've, be, I've put too many plants in for the space, but I'm able to sort of snip off a leaf here to let the neighbouring plant flourish. Any weeds that appear are gone within moments. I'm out there every single morning uh, having a little wander around sort of inspection. So it's an odd way to garden. That's not how I normally do it. I'd normally wake the garden up in spring, enjoy it during the summer and put it to bed for the winter. And I wouldn't expect to be preening the whole thing but it's uh, it's been fun it's been fun and I've squeezed every square inch out of it so I've got a newfound love of alpine plants and because they're tiny and don't take up much space you know I'm able to just get more and more into the garden and I've been having window boxes made just so I can put plants everywhere basically 
<laughs> well, I'm sure it's absolute perfection uh, in your garden. And what do you think will be the next biggest trend now, um, you know, moving forward in, over the next few years with garden design? Well, it's quite interesting trends in garden design because it's like not much happened for hundreds of years. You know, the style which endures in, in this country is probably arts and crafts gardens. So that's, you know, 100 years ago or more. And that's still what most people do um, with sort of clipped hedges, rooms around a house, you know, bit of brick and stone paving, bit of wood, you know, that sort of thing. So that's the sort of underlying thing, you know, Hidcote, which is an arts and grass garden, is still the most visited garden in this country. So, yeah, things move pretty slowly. And it's really only the last 20 years or so that contemporary gardens have, have really hit the scene here. Um, and we've seen lots of things in that time. We've been through the shiny stainless steel. We seem to have come full circle and come back to natural materials, naturalistic planting. So wildflower meadows, new perennial plantings, naturalistic perennial plantings, all those sorts of things. And it's like we have all of these things available to us now. And I think the trend going forward is definitely going to be in a more a more naturalistic style. We're now very aware of the importance of biodiversity, uh, bringing wildlife into our garden, all those sorts of things. And so um, I can see that that naturalistic look. We, we've been through a period of time, particularly with London Gardens, which are very, I might say uptight, very clipped, very straight, strict, just a few different plants, very easy to look after, don't even need a gardener. And I think they look great in a magazine, but they can be a little bit soulless. And I think we're moving away from that into a much looser way of planting and gardening. Well, Andy, thanks so much for joining us on North Oaker at Home. Uh, we'll definitely be looking at uh, checking in with you uh, in the future uh, and really appreciate your insights. I think uh, there's, watch this space in regard to green spaces. I think it's, uh, you know, there's just going to be so much value to, you know, more into the future. Thanks a lot.